1: Now, here is Cheryl Jones.
2: Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, your host, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. I hope you'll be in touch with me with your thoughts, feelings, ideas. This shows a conversation between me, my guests, and you, the listeners, so let's continue to talk. You can find links to my website. To email me or look at what else I do and social media at the Good Grief host page at Voice America. And today I'm talking with Eleanor Vincent. Eleanor is an award winning writer whose memoir, Swimming with Maya A Mother's Story, was nominated for the Independent Publisher Book Award in 2004 and was reissued by Dream of Things Press in 2013. Appearing on the New York Times bestseller list twice, the book was called Engaging by Booklist. Swimming with Maya chronicles the life and death of Eleanor's 19-year-old daughter, who was thrown from a horse and pronounced brain dead at the hospital. Eleanor donated her daughter's organs to critically ill patients and poignantly describes her friendship with the middle-aged man who received Maya's heart. Eleanor is a national spokesperson on grief recovery and organ donation, appearing on CNN and San Francisco's Evening Magazine, and she's also been featured in the San Francisco Chronicle and interviewed on radio and television programs around the country. Eleanor received an MFA in creative writing from Mills College, and you can find out more about her and her work at EleanorVincent.com. Welcome to the show, Eleanor. Thank you, Cheryl. I'm so glad to be here. I'm so happy to have you. I I have said to you privately, but I just I just want to say again uh, how beautiful and eloquent, and also of course painful, I found your book. Um, your your writing really to me um, captured what I know of grief so so um, vividly.
3: Well, thank and I, you. It's it's always. As I was telling you earlier, too, it's always an honor to me when anyone reads the book and communicates with me. And I I do get a lot of communication from readers now because there's so many different channels through which we can communicate with each other. Sure. And I'm always so moved <laughs> um, when somebody says words like you just said because, you know, this is a very personal uh, topic but also a very universal one so i 'm always thrilled when someone reads the story, gets a lot out of it, even enjoys reading it, although it is about a very difficult topic, obviously
2: yeah, well, also, I have to say that um, i was I was um, there were some special reasons for me to identify um, my my daughter, who just graduated from college as a theater she 'd graduated in theater. Um she's she's kind of um out of the box. Uh <laughs> you know, when we sent her off in the car, we were a little nervous always. So I think as a as a parent, I I related. Of course, I could not imagine whatsoever what it is actually like, but but I did find myself kind of catching my breath at moments reading the book. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Um well,
3: as you know, if you're the mother of a gifted, creative young woman, uh, you are often holding your breath both out of pride and delight and out of concern about mm-hmm. the decisions that your child might be making. And I think that's true for parents almost at any age. I, I'm especially in awe of mothers with very young children who read the book and write to me because I think it is the most unimaginable thing for the mother of a young child to think that anything could happen to her child. I mean, we, we need to protect ourselves from that reality. And that's why I say I'm so honored when people read the book because it is hard for anyone to imagine experiencing the loss of a child, and with reason. It's all upside down. Mm -hmm. Our children are not supposed to die before we do, but yet they do. And so I wanted to be able to speak honestly about that experience, and in a personal way, as I said, but also in a way that's universal. And I love it when people say to me, oh, after I finished your book, I went and hugged my kids in a different way. Then mm. I know, oh, I did my job as Absolutely. a writer and as a human being.
2: <laughs> and it's, so. it's an interesting point you're making. When my oldest was very young, I went to a, um, my, my wife was quite ill. That's how I got to this work in the first place. She ultimately died. And I went to a workshop, and I was aware of being very afraid of losing a, my child, when she was Mm -hmm. young, and the workshop leader, it was Stephen Levine, suggested that we all, all of us parents, imagine our child dying and Mm -hmm. continue living that imagination until we got to the moment where we could say in our own mind, now I can go on. Mm -hmm. And actually that uh, relieved a great deal of fear for me. So I wonder if Mm -hmm. your book maybe has that, um, impact on people sometimes, too, that they that they kind of uh, face directly that fear instead mm-hmm. of having it lurking around
3: the edges. Well, I hope that that's the case for some people. Uh, you know, of course, I don't really have any way of knowing it for sure, but what I can say is that it takes courage to face that as a parent because for me, it caused me, every time I would think about it before this actually happened to me, I would say, oh, if anything happened to one of my kids, I could not go on. And I had to break through that denial that my love would somehow magically pr- protect my children And a good deal of swimming with Maya, as you know, is about that struggle to let go of the illusion of control. Yes. (laughs) So that was a huge part of my um, grief process, and I think you know Stephen Levine is a is a or Levine is a fabulous example of somebody. Who attempts to work with people to get them to do that in the here and now, and not wait until there is a crisis? Right. Yes. Um, unfortunately for me, I, it it took that level of crisis to get me to a place, and it took a long time of realizing, oh, wait, I see, I'm not in control. Okay, well, what does that mean? And I think on some level, even 23 years after Maya's death, I am still coming to terms with that. Mm -hmm. That's a big one for me. Yes, and I
2: noticed there are ways in which uh, it hit you over the head, clobbered you right away, and then had to be revisited in many different forms uh, over the period uh, where you were writing the book, at least, and you 're saying beyond right. that as well but one oh, yeah. of the early one of the early moments I think you st- start trying to to grapple with that um, i 'd love you to read that paragraph from your book um, when you were still, um, because the readers i mean the listeners wouldn 't know that your daughter did not immediately die. Uh, um, that, that she lived for some time while they figured out um, that, that she was brain dead. And um, there, this section in the book really does talk about coming to terms with having to let go,
3: yes? Yes, yes. Well, so this is the moment after Maya's been in a coma for four days, and I'm finally starting to realize, you know what? Uh, this may not turn out the way I want it to. And I'm realizing that it may be too hard for her to let go if I don't say yes to that Mm -hmm. letting go, which is the leaving of the physical body. So I describe this moment where I actually speak to her, because it's my belief that people in comas can still hear, and give her my permission to go, which was one of the most Difficult things I have ever had to do in my life. And so this is my description of the aftermath of that statement of permission. Maya's chest rises and falls. The ventilator hisses. The computers beep. Fiber optic cable snakes into her skull to measure the pressure inside her brain. I never knew love could be so big that it could expand enough to allow even this. I have a premonition of lifelong grief rolling toward me, but I know that, once again, I am being asked to step step aside and give my daughter her freedom. God must be mad, I must be mad, to say, yes, go.
2: That i've I've had a moment like that with my father, which of course is much much different than with your child I think um, but it, uh, i was I was thinking as I read that about the for you know the act of sitting in the room with someone and knowing you have to becoming clear you have to let go and how um uh Vivid that can be mm-hmm. the knowing, you know. I I, yeah. I hear that in that section that it just was so evident and clear that that's what you had to do, even knowing what you would have to face in in doing it.
3: Right, right. Well, I you know my experience of that was that there was some form of divine grace speaking through me, and that the human part of me was struggling mightily with this permission that I was giving my child to disappear from the face of the earth. It it really was unthinkable, and yet a larger part of me knew this is the right thing to do for her Mm -hmm. sake. I must Mm -hmm. do this. Mm -hmm. And now I can say years later, it was also for my sake because that was kind of the beginning of my uh, expansion, if you will, into a different state of awareness about death and dying, about my own mortality, about Maya and about my children and what all of this means ultimately. And I'm not saying I have any answers, like I can't say this is what it means and you know what I mean? But I, yeah. I have these senses and I have these awarenesses and I, I have much more freedom now than I did at that moment in time, more than 23 years ago, when I said those words to my comatose child. And I even realized pretty quickly after she was actually declared dead and I was asked to donate her organs and so on, it was shocking, of course. It was a terrible shock. I barely could survive it. And yet at the same time, I realized You know, people go to India and they pay money and they sit in caves and they meditate with gurus in order to have this awareness. And I'm getting it in one fell swoop in a way that I wish I didn't have to get it. But, you know, my ego was shattering all over the place Mm. and it was uh, transformational. (laughs) That's what I can say
2: yes absolutely and you and you just moved to the next thing that was on my mind which is that immediately upon accepting the the truth of what was happening um you were asked to make a big decision mm-hmm. about whether to donate her organs or not and i was very moved by how immediate that was for you and how it was uh I don't know if I've ever um heard anyone talk about it um being immediately experienced you know in that moment as a way of continuing her
3: mm-hmm. <laughs> you know I'm
2: sure people must experience that but you described that so um in a way that brought me into it um very mm-hmm. very fully um, but could you talk a little bit about that moment? You know, what went on for you that, that, um, that was so clear right away? As soon as they well, asked, it sounded like.
3: The, the, you know, all these moments, as you know, because you've been through this, all these moments are not like normal moments. There are layers and time is elastic, so it stretches and the moment gets very big and you're just inside this immense moment (laughs) and there's almost a physical feeling to it. And in that moment when the surgeon asked if I would consider organ donation, I just had this flash of so many different things of my mother Who had died of kidney failure less than two years before of end stage Mm. diabetes and a transplant would have saved my mother's life. Um, you know, I, I flashed on that. I flashed on how after that I put the donation sticker on my license because even though it was too late for my mother, I knew that there were, this was happening to other people and that maybe I could make a difference by donating. My organs, if anything were to happen to me. And then I flashed on the fact of other people sitting in other windowless conference rooms in hospitals all over the world in situations just like we were when, where somebody was delivering to them the worst possible news about their loved one and how a transplant could save somebody's life and save that family from the shattering that we were experiencing. I mean, I was watching my younger daughter sob. I was watching my ex-husband break down. My daughter's boyfriend's mother was screaming. I was the only one in that room at that moment who was still, Because I was absolutely frozen with Uh shock, with trying to decide, with thinking about Maya and about all these other things I've mentioned, and something in me, again, divine grace, I don't know, inner strength, whatever, just said yes. I just knew to the fiber of my being that this was the right decision, and of course, afterwards, in the months and years afterwards, I doubted myself and I had regrets and I had second thoughts and, you know, I learned a lot more about the process of organ donation and that was uh, difficult for me. But you know what? In the end, that uh, inspiration I had in that moment was absolutely right. And I can say that In hindsight now, more than two decades later, because I know everything that has happened as a result of that decision, things that I couldn't have known in the moment, but yet I was somehow inspired to say, yes, do it. And it has profoundly changed many, many, many people's lives. Most of them I will never encounter, but I have encountered some of them, and I'm in touch with family members and actually one of the recipients to this day and it has made a tremendous difference not only in their lives but in our life as a family yeah even within I, a, I, go ahead even within a short period of time my younger daughter megan was coming to me saying mom what you did is so helping me to see that something good can come out of something so terrible and my daughter, my younger daughter, was only 11 at the time. So this decision that I made had a profound effect on our family and on countless other people and their families.
2: Let's talk about that more when we get back uh, from our first break. One thing I notice in that is 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 kind of um, uh, an experience of oneness a little bit, that at that moment yes. you were just you were connected with everyone experiencing what they were um, yes. so let's let's continue with that when we get back listeners you can take these few minutes to go to my host page and connect with me or you can find eleanor at eleanorvincent.com back in a few minutes <laughs>
0: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America
1: Health & Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before...
0: We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones.
2: I'm here with Eleanor Vincent, the author of Swimming with Maya, a book about the death of her daughter Maya and her own road back to a changed life. And uh, before the break, we were talking about that moment of decision where the surgeon says, would you consider a donation? And uh, you described it as having um, uh, time being sort of expanded so that one right. instantaneous moment had a lot in it. One thing I noticed that was in it was um, was some previous thinking about donation itself, um, that it wasn't a brand-new idea conceptually to you. You had considered it in ways. Do you think that, that was a help to you in that moment?
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean, this is not something that is an easy decision, and the fact that I had considered it, that I knew that it could have saved my mom's life, and as I mentioned, my mom had only recently passed less than 18 months before, so that was still very alive for me. I was still grieving for my mother at the time Mm. that Maya died, so... It was very alive for me because I had made the decision to put the pink sticker on my own driver's license and had it witnessed. I had discussed that with Maya. I had said, Maya, you know, because of what happened to Grandma, I want to do this, and I want you to know about it. Are you okay with it? And she said, yes, she was. Now, she did not say oh, yes, and I'm going to do that too, or I would want that also, because I think she thought she was immortal. It would not have mm. crossed her mind. <laughs> she was only you know 18 at the time we had that conversation. So I had to decide about her without knowing whether or not that's what she would have wanted, and that was part of what I had to wrestle with afterwards. And yet the
2: fact that you had had the conversation about you gives you a a sense of direction about it, I would think.
3: Correct. She she wasn't horrified or, (laughs) you know. Right. If um, she had said, oh, mom, no, that's gross, don't do that, or I don't believe in that, or, you know, something like that, that would have changed my decision-making process. But she didn't. And I think it was only because she hadn't even considered it in terms of herself. Right. Right. So, you know, and, I had and we think it's going to be a decision on her behalf. Right,
2: absolutely. And we think it's going to be a much a far off at that age, a far off um kind of thing to consider. Uh right. which, you know, a lot of a lot of um interviews I've done with end of life um, experts or you know people working in that that field really want families to come together at all of all ages and talk about it from the point of view of it's a if it's an issue for all of us.
3: Uh, oh, absolutely! Because, oh, yeah. yeah, and you know, obviously, my situation and our family situation, you know, raised my awareness about that. I already had a will because I was a single mother and I had two children and I wanted to be sure my children were going to be taken care of if anything happened to me. But after what happened to Maya, I had a whole new level of awareness about the importance of these conversations. And one of the things I, I do in my work now is talk with people about the importance of advanced directives. You absolutely, at any age, need to sit down as a family and have these conversations because None of us know what the future may hold. And your family, it is a gift to your family for them to know what you would want. And I'm glad so you're saying conversation. Com- yeah, I'm glad you're saying conversation,
2: although um, the, the piece of paper matters. Uh, matters. I'm, I'm um, coming to think the conversation matters even more because it's such a nuanced thing. The way that we that, the way that we die and um, it's so important that people know the whole sense of it as opposed to just the, the
3: legal categories I guess
2: absolutely um, that's
3: exactly correct the advanced directive is one thing that's the legal piece of it. The conversations are way more important because you need to ensure that your loved ones understand what you are asking them to do. And when you select a healthcare agent and you can only have one, you have to select one person, then you can have backups in case that person isn't available. But you have to be sure that that person is comfortable with your values and your choices and will perform your wishes as you are stating them, and you can't know that unless you talk about it, unless mm. you tease out whatever thoughts or values they may have, right? It, so the conversation is absolutely essential, and it isn't just one conversation. This conversation has to be had repeatedly. I, I know this in my own family. I recently did my advance directive because I was going to have some minor surgery, so I was very motivated. Okay, there's a reason I need to do it. I need to do it now. I did it. Uh, I'm fortunate to work for Kaiser Permanente, so I had some su- facilitation and support in doing it and somebody to ask me good questions about what it is I wanted and help me clarify. And then I had the conversation with my daughter and her husband because mm-hmm. I was asking my daughter to be my agent and her husband to be the backup. And I could see Megan did not want to have this conversation. She understood, she understood what I was asking, she agreed to it, I gave her a copy of the advance directive, but I know we need to have the conversation again, and we need to keep having it, <laughs> no matter yes. how uncomfortable it is.
2: Well, and also it's a it's a roadblock to other things. Like uh my oldest child who now has children was was saying that they uh went to get their wills done and all of that and they started crying in the car and I don't think they've still finished it. You know, right, there's something right, about right. facing facing up to um the the reality of our deaths that allows wow. us to do some other things too, I feel. Exactly. So, so you made that decision. We'll talk later about um, uh, the person you got to know who did, uh, who was a recipient of, of my, one of Maya's organs. But what I want to talk about right now is there's that moment of, I, I like your word grace, that there's that moment of grace that takes us through. I don't like the word shock for that moment. It, it feels much more like grace in my life um, and it takes us through that but then the reality of what's happened starts hitting and I wondered if you would share uh the part of your book about the funeral um yeah because i I really feel you captured some of that in in that in that section
3: yes so this takes place at the Oakland Center for Spiritual Living, which was then called the First Church of Religious Science in Oakland. And I'm describing coming in, sitting down, and being surrounded by 200 other people, including some I was very close to, and the unreality of it all. Wrapped in the cotton wool of frozen emotion that clings to me now, I sit in the front pew of the First Church of Religious Science in Oakland, When the church is almost full, the organist begins to play. The massive stained glass window radiates hues of blue and purple light over the sanctuary, bathing our faces in its glow. We buried Maya yesterday. Today at her memorial service, I am told that the aim is to celebrate her life. To me, it feels like a grand game of make-believe. Dale, that's Maya's boyfriend, takes my hand and I see a lover's yearning in his eyes and wonder if it is anything at all like a mother's. She was so unique, he whispers to me. Was? Why is he saying this? Even for him, she is already moving into the past. I squeeze his hand to let him know I hear him and I sympathize. Yet the ways we know Maya are so different. Surrounded by people I love, I feel completely alone.
2: That last line in particular is so almost universal that 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 moment of trying to grapple with what's happened is so singular in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and even other grievers may not help you to feel accompanied?
3: (laughs) Uh, Oh, I can pretty much say with assurance that other grievers are not going to help you feel accompanied. It's comforting. It's comforting to Mm -hmm. see that other people, you know, loved her, cared about her, are going to miss her terribly, are grieving for her, are shedding tears. All that's very comforting. But no one in that circumstance knew Maya in the way I knew her. No one else carried her as a fetus in their body and gave birth to her and tended her and cared for her and worried over her and laughed with her in the way that I did. No one. And so, of course my grief is going to be unique. And I think the same is true for all of us. We all have unique relationships with the people in our lives. And so we are going to grieve their losses very differently. And giving ourselves permission to do it differently and giving others permission to respond differently is a crucial part of going through this grief journey in a healthy way. The other thing
2: I deeply appreciated about your book was how honest you were about your relationship with Maya, which you which you've just kind of referred to in what you said. The, and, and that that intersected in my in my reading with what we all do in grief, which is to question everything. Uh, <laughs> everything we did, every everything we didn't. And I can only imagine that that is amplified when it's your child. Because okay. of that sense of feeling responsible for their survival and their being in a way. And right. I wondered if you could if you could talk some about that because I think that's hard to um be public about it, hard to be honest about the ways in which you wish you'd done things differently, or you know, um that you question everything about the relationship and had to re examine it all.
3: Oh yes. Well, that's one huge reason I wrote the book, because I was in this deep process of re-looking at everything, Uh, re-looking at my own life and relationships with my parents and my family, looking at my intimate relationships that resulted (laughs) in the birth of these two children, looking at my relationship with my two children And particularly with Maya, because when your child is suddenly gone, everything that you did or did not do, as you said, Cheryl, just becomes glaring. It's like a Mm -hmm. billboard. And, you know, I really believe that regret, remorse is part of the grieving process. And I think in the early years of my grief process, I was especially in that state of regret and remorse. I remember vividly times of just falling to my knees by the side of my bed, weeping and begging Maya to forgive me. Mm. Please, please forgive me for what I did do, for what I didn't do, for the ways in which I let you down, you know, and I think this is part of human relationships. I don't think I'm unique in this. I don't think Mm -hmm. I was a terrible mother. I think I was a pretty awesome mother given The woundedness that I had to deal with in my own life, the lack of role modeling, being a single parent, and the stresses of that, the economic stresses, the psychological stresses, I think I did an awesome job. But I was just one wounded person trying to raise these two kids. And so, of course, I did and did not do things that ended up making me feel like I had failed in some way. So... You know, I think it's, one of the great things about life and relationships is that there is always the possibility of repair, okay? And even in death, you could say, oh, well, she's dead, it's too late. No, I don't believe that because I experienced her as part of me, as part of my life, as part of my consciousness. So it's not too late. So writing this book was my way of having a conversation with her, saying, Mm. hey, here's what happened. Here's what I saw about you. Here's some of what you saw about me. Here's what I saw reflected about me in your eyes. Here are the conflicts we had. Here are the fabulous times we had. Here's the love that we had, as she said to me, and I talk about this in the book, uh, just A month before she died, and I'm so grateful that she said this, we were in Santa Barbara doing a mother-daughter shopping excursion. She was in college down there, and she took my hand as we were walking down the street, and she said, Mom, I just want you to know what a great mother you are. You never gave up on me, even when it got so hard. And I just stopped. Right there on the street and turned to her with tears in my eyes and threw my arms around her and said, Maya, that's the best thing you could ever say to me. You know, because she was affirming that she got it. She understood that even when I was failing and flailing around, trying to figure out how to deal with what was going on, I was trying, I was loving her. It all Mm -hmm. came from love. So Mm -hmm. even when we fall down, even when we disappoint each other, even when we do things that, in retrospect, we think, "Oh my God, wh- why? How could I have done that?" Even then, it's not too late. We can repair it. And yes. I have apologized to both my children. I have said to Megan and to Maya, "Please forgive me. I didn't do things in the best possible way. Can we start over?" Mm-hmm. So. You know, repair, that's the key to relationships as far as I'm concerned. I do it now <laughs> yes. with my granddaughters. I sure. can get into a situation with my granddaughters where I'm missing some key thing. I don't understand why they're behaving the way they are, and I might say something sharp. And now I know enough, I'm wise enough, and I'm old enough to pick, on it, pick up on it much more quickly. And I will turn around and say, oh, Lucia, I'm so sorry. I didn't understand. I'm sorry. We can say that as parents and grandparents to children, even to little children, and they understand that, and the bond is repaired and refashioned, and I believe it's made stronger. Well, and the uh, the last thing
2: I want to pick up on on that before we take our, our second break is just that some things are... I, I was thinking of my own daughter and the risky kinds of things that I quote-unquote allowed uh, mm-hmm. in, her, in her young life. She's a little bit more tempered now at 22. Um, and the fact that in a way for her to be herself, I had to take those risks too. Sometimes mm-hmm. is a, a thing is a mistake in light of what later happens, but <laughs> not entirely, you know, there's a grappling there um, that, right. I, that I felt in many moments with you and Maya as well.
3: Oh, yeah, no, that was a constant seesaw, how much risk, how much protection. Absolutely. Well, it's time for
2: our second break already, and this is a chance for the listeners to go find us. I'm at weatheringgrief.com with two Gs, and on the Good Grief Host page, Eleanor and her book, Swimming with Maya, are at eleanorvincent.com, and we'll both be back after the break.
0: Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief.
2: Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm Cheryl Jones and I've been here with Eleanor Vincent, the author of Swimming with Maya, about the death of her daughter and her own path since then and I I wanted to start this this last part of the show talking about Fernando, the man who received Maya's heart because I was very touched by him and by what happened between your family and and his family, I had a guest recently on the show, Isabel Stenzel Burns, who wrote about receiving an, a donation and her sister, she and her sister uh, both had um, cystic fibrosis and both received lung transplants. And so I've, I've been uh, on the other end of this equation recently, um, you know, with her. Um, and I and so maybe because of that, I felt so connected with also Fernando's story in it.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, transplantation and donation is a miracle, and it's very profound. And I was very fortunate. Only ten percent of donors ever request and meet their recipients because. Donation is closed, just like adoption. So both parties have to request if you're going to meet, and you know it's a it's very emotional. So Fernando and I requested a meeting within two days of each other uh, back in 1994, which was two years after Maya died. That's and, that's
2: pretty pretty um, striking, right there, isn't it? Yes. That two years later, you would request within a few days.
3: Yes. Well, it happened, and I recount this in the book. It was a series of serendipitous coincidences. I had written an article about organ donation, and it was published in the Sunday magazine of the San Jose Mercury News. And I had written about our personal story, and a friend of Fernando's saw the article and realized as I was describing our donor, or I mean, I'm sorry, our recipient as a Chilean businessman, who received a heart and the time frame in which he received it, the friend realized, oh, this can only be Fernando. And he uh-huh. gave the article to Fernando and his wife. And after reading about Maya and our family, Fernando realized he wanted to meet. So that's why it came about. And, you know, I describe it in the book, and it was, you know, a very profound uh, meeting. We subsequently met two more times after that, so three times in all over the course of a couple of years, and I think for both of us, it was very healing. It was also, for me, deeply perplexing and caused me to you know, go to deeper levels in my grief because I could hear my daughter's heart beating in this man's chest. I mean, the first mm. time I met him, he embraced me, and I could hear Maya's heart beating, Mm-hmm. and the sensation i had was oh my god my daughter my a part of my daughter is right here but i can't touch her i can't interact with her and that was very difficult so i understand why people might not want to meet on the other hand i'm very glad that we did meet and that our families you know became friends I'm still in touch with Fernando's daughter, and she wrote to me several years ago and said she was pregnant with her first child. They had found out the baby was going to be a girl, and she wanted to name the baby Maya. Mm. So, I mean, you know, the story continues, and there's this little being now called Maya, who's, you know, what, she'd be three years old now, running around with people knowing why she's called that and remembering the young woman who gave her heart to the grandfather of this baby. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, it's it's profound. What can I say? I, I feel privileged. I feel glad that we both had the courage to go through that and to have those moments together. It's very special.
2: One thing that just really impacted me in the book is your other daughter going to visit them. Yeah. And I, the thing that uh, you didn't talk about, but I was so aware of, is when one child dies and you have another, um, I i can imagine it impacts your, your experience of letting go or holding on. And oh, yeah. You have this job to then... Not hold on too tight, maybe. Right. Um, right. That that seemed like a very courageous act on your part to let Megan go visit them. Did you experience it that way?
3: Oh, yes. And it was extremely difficult, exactly in the way that you describe. Um, You know, I was terrified of losing Megan, terrified. Mm -hmm. And I vowed that I would not allow that terror to overwhelm my ability to find safe and healthy ways for my daughter to spread her wings and explore the world. And so she not only went to Chile to visit with Fernando and his family, they were dual nationals, they went back and forth between Chile and the United States, and Megan Very much wanted to go to Chile and I was invited as well, but I declined because I knew it would be just too emotional for me to be with Fernando 24-7 for two weeks. That was just not possible. So instead a girlfriend went with her. They were both uh, pretty good Spanish speakers, but of course I was terrified and I was trusting Fernando and his wife, you know, to look after my precious 16-year-old daughter, all that I had left. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was scary. And, again, I'm glad that I did it. I think it was very formative for Megan, and I think it was important for her to have her own relationship with the family not mediated by me. Um, and then later, uh, the next summer, Megan went on the Amigos De Los Americas pro, uh, program to uh, work with healthcare workers down in Mexico. And so she, that trip to Chile was a jumping off point for her, whereby she ex- explored Latin American culture. She increased her language abilities. And then she had this other experience where she was in country for six weeks and we couldn't even communicate for the first month. It just about drove me insane. I uh, can imagine a that. Rural, rural village. <laughs> Um, but yes, this is the tension that I think all parents face. But when you lose a child, it is extra difficult to let go.
2: And and the other thing I notice in the story you just told is just the, the sort of alchemical way that experiences lead to other experiences. It's hard to, you're saying, uh, Megan, then had some very huge experiences in her life uh, as a result of that, or in part part as a result of that, that I'm sure it would be hard to imagine her life as it is now without those experiences. Hard to go backwards, huh?
3: Oh, yeah, exactly. No, these were very, very formative experiences for her.
2: Absolutely. And, And, of course... Um, for you and I wanted to talk just a little bit about your life now. Um, uh, you know, it's been a long time since my wife died too, and I've had the chance with this show to think quite a bit about how that continues to impact me. Um, mm-hmm. I don't. I don't um, subscribe to the idea that you can that grief is over, it's just different <laughs> as time goes on. I'm guessing that that's true for you, too. So how would you say that shows in your life now, That the experience of losing her?
3: Uh, well, I agree. Grief is never over, but it does change. Mm-hmm. Um, it shapeshifts, and I've changed. I'm a different person, a very different person than I was then. Um And I think a more compassionate person, a more aware person. Um, And, you know, I, as I said earlier, (laughs) I believe that our dead are always with us. Okay, they're in another dimension. We can't see them with our earthly eyes, but I feel like there's communication happening. And if we're open to it and sensitive to it, and if we invite it, that communication is always there. So I always, I'm always, i always open to hearing from Maya, let's put it that way. And <laughs> I often will ask her, uh, Maya, I need some inspiration here, or what would you do, or what do you think, or, you know, whatever. In other words, my relationship with Maya continues. It's never going to be over. And when I make my transition to the other side of life, one of the things I'm really looking forward to is encountering Maya in whatever form she's in at that point. Um, Because I know we've been together for eons, and we're going to go on being together. So she's not physically present here on this plane, but she's very, very present in my life.
2: Yeah, I realized when I started the show, and I've mentioned this on the show before, that... um, You know, it it was this, um, my wife is always kind of on my shoulder, my first wife, Um, Mm -hmm. but it was a chance to really illuminate that, and I realized that what I was experiencing was was connection and gratitude more than any other thing, Mm -hmm. Um, which came as a little bit of a surprise, but was very welcome, that I I agree with you completely that... Um, there's some transition that's been made for me with her into another way of being connected. Correct. Um, but, of course, that came out of, you know, you, you have to realize what's disconnected to, to get there, I think.
3: Yeah. Well, yeah. Grace is hard work. It's the hardest work I've ever done other than parenting. It's hard, <laughs> hard work. And, and those I'm are affiliated that, in a way, gl- aren't they? I'm glad they? that I did the work because it brought me to this place of connection and gratitude, just as you were saying, Cheryl.
2: I think this, this uh, the last reading I was hoping you'd share um, captures that new way of relating. Would
3: you share that? Sure. Maya swims eternally back and forth in me. Although she was my child, now she seems to have become my elder, far wiser in the ways of life and death than I am. She moves between the anchors of her lost life on earth in an element so fluid, so encompassing, so diaphanous, I cannot see it with earthly eyes. But in my soul, I know it is so. And as she moves, I move back and forth between life and afterlife in my dreams Swimming with Maya. She has such a very, uh, from reading
2: the whole book, such a very present quality. I feel as if I have met
3: her. <laughs> yeah. Well, lucky, lucky you. Lucky me, I know, absolutely. Just, she was just absolutely. a vibrant, vibrant. Spirit and presence and hilariously funny. And one of my great regrets about the book is that I couldn't fully capture her humor. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm hoping to do that in other writing, but she was hysterical. She would have a room in stitches. Um, She could also be very difficult, as I discussed in the book, but what a vibrant spirit. She was truly remarkable.
2: I'm identifying again, <laughs> thinking of my own children. <laughs> Eleanor, thank you so very much for being here today. I've I've really enjoyed talking with you about Maya and about your book. So thank thanks so you much. so much, let's, Cheryl.
3: I really appreciate it.
2: Let's let's stay in touch and and listeners. Go to EleanorVincent.com to find out more about Eleanor. Next week, my guest is Kevin Fisher Paulson, whose book, A Song for Lost Angels, is a really painful and beautiful account of Kevin and his husband losing custody of their triplets after a year in which the babies who started off uh, in a in a bad physical state thrived in their home. That loss was a result of prejudice against them as a gay family. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation.
1: Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week.